Welcome to Saga Thing, where we're putting the sagas of the Icelanders on trial. I'm John. And I'm Andy. And we're going to be tackling the second half of Kjalnasinga Saga on this episode. But uh, before we get to that, Andy, this is our first time recording since you moved from Ohio to Mississippi in mid-May. How are you liking the new digs? The new digs are a little cramped, but I kind <laughs> of like them. I'm digging mm-hmm. Oxford, Mississippi. It's beautiful. Uh, I'm mm-hmm. all in. Excellent. Well... Good luck. Thank you. Uh, And the important thing is you've managed to move to the American South just in time for summer. So enjoy that. (laughs) Yeah, well, it's it's not been too bad, actually. I kind of like the heat as a Florida boy, you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, And and while I've been busy relocating my family and moving all my worldly possessions, most of it into storage, sadly, uh, you've (laughs) presumably been reading exhaustively about Kjolnasinga Saga. Oh, you know I have. Uh, But before we pick up our story, we need to run through a quick recap of what happened in the first half of the saga. All right, why don't you uh, kick things off for us? Of course. Last time on Kjalnasinga Saga. I forgot that we do this. We're doing this? <laughs> We're doing this. All right, go ahead. Our story began with the settlement of the Kjalnas region of Iceland, led by Helgi Bjorlund. Helgi, an open-hearted sort of fellow, allowed both Norwegian pagans and Irish Christians to settle in the area, setting the stage for conflict in the generations to come. Helgi's son and grandson, Thorgrim the Gothi, and his son Thorsti begin giving the business to Bua Andridesen, the son of an Irish immigrant. When Bua is finally outlawed over his refusal to support Thorgrim's temple to Thor, he and Thorstein begin a tit-for-tat. That ends with Thorstein murder. Bua's father Andre killed, and Thorgrim's temple burned to the ground. Bua escapes Thorgrim's vengeful grasp with the help of his foster mother, the wily and maybe witchy Ezia, and soon finds himself in a three-way contest for the hand of the local beauty, Olaf the Fair. One rival swain, Colfin the Coalbiter, kills the third, a Norwegian named Orn, before trying to eliminate Bua through a duel. But Colfin proves second best to Bua in their brouhaha. While Colfin nurses his injuries and his thoughts of revenge, Bua abducts Olaf and brings her to his hideout cave, where they are protected by Esia. But Colfin has already made one attempt to draw Bua back out for another fight. Can Bua survive both outlawry and the combined anger of Thorgrim and Colfin? Is Ezia really a witch, or is the whole spellcasting thing a frame-up job? And wasn't this story supposed to involve Norway? Find out this time on... Saga Thing! Fjolnasinga Saga, chapters 11 to 18. Uh, Alright, so if we're done being stupid... <laughs> oh my god. Uh... We've got three things we have to keep an eye on in the second half of this saga. Uh, The first is the religious question. Our author is really interested in the idea of early Irish Christians in Iceland, but also in exploring details of pagan religious practice. Mm -hmm. Sure. Uh, Although we ended up with the same old problem of how to interpret religious detail that supposedly describes practices four to five centuries earlier. Oh, sure. Yeah. Easy. Uh, Yeah. And a second issue is the author's subversion of narrative expectations. We talked last time about how Bua seems to be set up as the story's protagonist, but he has many of the markers of a saga antagonist. And to be clear, you don't mean an anti-hero. No. Right. Bua is half Irish. He's a Christian. He's the foster son of a witch. He Alleged witch. Oh, she's a witch. She burns garbage, John. (laughs) 
That's a good point. And, and Bua is under her protection, right? He's mm-hmm. also done nothing to avenge his own father's death, and he's abducted Olaf the fair and forced her into a marriage relationship. And he's making her live in a cave. Oh, and he's already been outlawed. I mean, there's a tradition of outlaw sagas, but this one usually isn't counted alongside Greta's saga or Gisli's saga. And there are some good reasons for that. Right. And his rival is a coal biter who is more usually the protagonist in a story like this. All true. So the third thing to keep an eye on are the set pieces this author is using. We said last time that this is a pastiche saga. It's got bits and pieces from all different kinds of traditions. And that's going to become even more pronounced in this half of the saga. We've got a narrative that goes, I would say, way outside the usual subject matter of a family saga Mm -hmm. into the matter of legendary sagas and folklore from Scandinavia and from Ireland. Right. Yeah, this is going to get weird, people. But how weird it gets depends on where you think the saga ends. Oh, is this about uh, Jokelstadter? Yes. You see, this saga ends a little abruptly, and then it's Mm -hmm. followed up by a short story that picks up right where the saga ends. And that story gets downright surreal. I'm looking forward to doing that. Um, uh, but so how strange this saga is depends on whether it's supposed to include that short story or not. Right. Now, we've solved this problem rather ingeniously by totally copping out and ignoring it. Score one for us. Well, I mean, that's not entirely true. We are not including it with <laughs> this saga, but we will end up doing a saga short on the Thouter, which is called mm-hmm. Yokel Buason's Tale. And we will post that episode as a follow up to our judgments for the saga or perhaps before mm-hmm. it, depending on what mood we're in. Um, but, uh, John, you ready? You ready to get this thing started? Well, I mean, we're all dressed up and my drink's already poured. We might as well. Let's do it. Part four. A change of scenery. So when we left Bua, he'd narrowly avoided being killed by his rival Colfin the Coalbiter. Now, Bua's enemies haven't been able to get to him due to Essia the Witch, but now we move ahead to the second mm-hmm. half. She's worrying that she won't be able to shield her stepson from the various people mm-hmm. who want him dead. She arranges horses for an escape, passage out of Iceland, and a traveling companion for Bua. Hopefully not Norwegian. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and uh, Olaf is uh, supposed to go home to Kolofjord for three years and wait for Bua's right. return. Which, I, to me, implies that they're they're uh, betrothed at this right, point. Well, I, I, well, see, but except she's already been with him, so I read this as a kind of common law marriage situation. Well, we can agree or disagree mm. about that. Um, yeah, sure. That last bit, though, suggests the three years part suggests that Bua is under a sentence of minor outlawry. If he's planning on returning in three mm. years, he's not under a permanent exile. That's right. Although, I, you know, I'm not convinced that this author is especially interested in the legal mm. niceties Probably of the stories. I, as far as I'm concerned, he seems to have more or less forgotten that outlawry was a plot point at this Maybe, point. Maybe, but that three years is interesting because it might indicate that he hasn't forgotten it. It might be that he's just unconcerned about the legal minutia of Bua's story. I, th- I still think you're being a little bit generous Possibly. to the author there. I mean, I think I think he's forgotten. Although, you know, in the in the romance stories, the the warrior poets and so on, uh, they often, you know, guys go away for three years and they leave their right. beloveds right. behind. And so I, that's what I think he's doing. Well, and you're right that we genre. have seen three years as a standard trope of how long yeah. a, uh, a betrothed woman is supposed to wait while a man goes overseas. Exactly. So wait for me. I'll be back, mm-hmm. which I think suggests something of what's going to happen with, right. with poor Olaf, at least part of it mm-hmm. anyway. 
Um, but anyway, at, at this point, uh, you know, Olaf's going to be going home and Boo is supposed to go away for a while until the whole everyone wants to kill him thing blows over <laughs> and maybe he makes a name for himself right. overseas. And, now, uh, and since Boo is a dutiful foster son, he does as he's told. But on the way, he does ride quite close by the farm of two of his enemies, Helgi and Vak Arngrimson. Andy, ah. this feels like a deliberate provocation. Yeah, it's not not smart. It, it, I mean, it's generally accepted this riding mm-hmm. by too closely as a as a provocation. I think, or, or at least we, we've seen other men do something similar. Mm-hmm. We've we've always read it that way. Yeah. Now the Arngrimsons are the cousins of Thorsten Thorgrimson, who Bua killed a few years back. So it's pretty reasonable to expect that they'd be interested in trying to kill him before he has a chance to slip away. Everyone wants to kill Bua. Uh, mm-hmm. And they're not alone on this. They they bring 10 more men with them when they ride out to intercept him. Yeah. Now, one of Boo's quirks is that rather than using a spear for distance fighting, he carries a sling, which he generally wears as a belt. Now, Essia has convinced him to carry a sword and shield now because the increased danger, right. but he's still got his sling belt. So when he sees a dozen men riding at him, he stops at a hill, climbs up, and collects a pile of stones. Right. Boo has got a companion riding with him, but he's never named. And his job here is just to hold Bua's horse. Good fellow. Uh, oh, yeah. So when the attackers get within range, Bua's alone on top of a hill. But he's already got that sling spinning, and he manages to kill four riders before he runs out of rocks. Yeah, so he's taken down a third of the attacking force with his sling alone. Now, you'd think people would start warning each other about attacking Bua by this point. <laughs> I mean, at least put on a padded shirt and a helmet, right. for crying out loud. Yeah, maybe some eye protection. Yeah, so now there are eight men left. And eight men is still a lot to attack a single person. Oh, but he's on a hill, though. He has the higher ground. Yeah. Now, you sound a little sarcastic about it. But Bua uses that high ground to good <laughs> that advantage. That was a Star Wars reference for you, buddy. Yeah, well, I know. but I, I, uh, <laughs> I thought you'd be impressed with a Star Wars reference. <laughs> you, you, I'll see if I can get one in before the end of the episode. Uh, okay. Now, Bua is able to wound both the Arngrimsons and kill two more of the companions once it turns to sword fighting. But he's still badly outnumbered, and although he hasn't yet been hurt, he's getting tired. Well, probably from climbing that hill. Well, I mean, things do look a little grim for him at this point. I mean, he's kind of trapped up there. But now he gets a bit of luck. The Arngrimson's neighbor, Elif of Elifstal, rides out with his men and breaks up the fight. Mm-hmm. He sends Bua on his way and offers to tend to the Arngrimson's wounds. And that works out suspiciously well for Bua, doesn't it? I mean... He's already an outlaw, so it's not like there's much chance of getting a settlement out of him over the killings. Right? Yeah. And he was defending himself. No, I mean, Elif riding out just in time to save Bua. That's Oh, well, that's not convenient. necessarily a coincidence. Um, remember in our last episode when we said there were all these names of settlers in the area that we weren't going to go into until they were important? Yeah, I, I just moved to Mississippi from Ohio, John. You can assume that my mind's full of other things. <laughs> I don't remember <laughs> poor that. poor boy. Full of things other than sagas. All right. <laughs> Uh, so one of those settlers was Elif of Elifstal. He was a shipmate of Helgi Bjorn. Later, Elif had a daughter named Thorgerd. Eh? Eh? I moved here from Ohio, man. Uh, my office is still in boxes. <laughs> and I have heat stroke. So give me a break. <laughs> okay. Uh, Thorgerd then married Kali of Kalafjord. And they uh-huh. had a daughter. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Olaf is their daughter. Yeah. So this guy is Olaf's grandfather. That's right. He's uh, also uh, a good friend of the Arngrimson's grandfather, Helgi. So he's trying to end the fight rather than just joining in on one side or the other. But yeah, 
he's fulfilling an obligation to his kind of grandson-in-law here. Hmm. So many weird implications to this. Mm-hmm. I mean, first of all, Aleph's got to be old at this point. <laughs> I mean, everyone else from that generation's dead by now, aren't they? Right. Yeah, pretty much. And we're, we're talking about his adult granddaughter's abductor. So there are two or three generations of people after him. I mean, how the heck is he breaking up a fight? I, I'm impressed that this guy can even get on his horse. Well, I mean, you know, Icelandic horses are slightly height challenged. <laughs> Still, I mean, he's got to be riding with a special support saddle, maybe a seatbelt or something. Not, not <laughs> so, you know, I, I kind of want Mel Brooks and Carl Reiner to do a sketch about the 2,000-year-old Viking. <laughs> Second, that suggests that Olaf's family has accepted Olaf and Bowie's relationship as legitimate. Aleph's got Bua dead to rights if he wants revenge for the abduction of his granddaughter, but he yeah. seems to be accepting. Yeah. I mean, actually, all he has to do is nothing, right? And the Arndelsons yeah. would probably be able to finish Bua off. It kind of supports what you said last time. This is a story that's either not interested in women's consent or is generally more open to the idea of the marriage by abduction tradition. And that's going to be important later in this story. Hmm. So so now that his grampy-in-law has saved his bacon... <laughs> Bua does escape Iceland, right? Yes. And he leaves the Arndrupsons behind to stew over their failure to catch him. Mm. He sails to Orkney and spends the winter with Earl Einar Ronvaldsen. Uh, <sighs> this is the famous Turf Einar of Orkney, although he's never called that in this saga. Turf Einar. That is mm-hmm. a great name, but it is. more importantly, it creates a clear time frame for our story. The time frame of Turf Einar. Yes. Uh, yeah, Einar was Earl from about 895 to 910, and this is probably toward the end of his reign, so about 40 years after the settlement of Iceland began. Okay. Bua helps the Earl deal with a few difficult situations over the winter, and that's kind of how we can pinpoint where in his reign this is happening. And the next year, when Bua announces in the spring that he wants to move on to Norway, the Earl tries unsuccessfully to convince him to stay. Finally, someone beside Witchy Essia likes having Bua around. That's good. Yeah, but you heard me say unsuccessfully. Bua is determined to visit Norway. Well, I mean, Trondheim is a lovely place in the springtime. Yeah, I've heard that. Uh, But Bua hasn't (laughs) and uh, (laughs) apparently doesn't know where he's going. So he lands in northern Norway and then has to make his way south to Trondheim by hitching a ride on a cargo ship. Yeah, we've seen that happen before, though. Yeah. you know, it, it's not an impressive entrance all the same to the king's residence, and it's taking a lot of time. He's been gone from Iceland for most of a year already at this point, and Olaf's only really ob- obligated to wait for three years for the betrothal, and I'll right. reiterate well, that. If, the if it's a betrothal, if it's mm-hmm. a betrothal, uh, but he's taking the scenic route, it's true. Uh, but he does get to Harold Fairhair's court eventually, and he approaches the king while he's eating, to announce himself and offer himself to the service of the king. You don't interrupt the king's dinner. <laughs> uh, our old frenemy, Harold Fairhair. Yeah, the same. Yeah. This is, as regular listeners know, the king who made Norway into a single kingdom. And in the process, he expelled thousands of Norwegians, inadvertently feeding the Norwegian diaspora across the north of Europe. Right. And the settlement of Iceland. Mm-hmm. Uh, so his relationship with Icelanders tends to be complicated. Uh, And so when Harold sort of grumbles at him through his food, are you sure you'll be welcome here? Bua thinks he's just being cranky. But then Harold sends for his two newest followers, Helgi and Vak Arndrimson. Aha! Dramatic entrance music for Helgi and Vak. (laughs) You know, you're, you're the editor. You don't have to just say dramatic entrance music. You can just add some. 
Oh, yeah. Go ahead here, and do it again. Here, I'll do it again. Helgi and Vak Arndrimson. See? Yeah. So so what's happened here is that while Bua has spent the last nine months cooling his heels in the Orkneys and taking a slow boat to Trondheim, the Arngrimsons have come up with a plan oh, for revenge. Please, please tell me it's cunning. Is it cunning? No, no. It's actually a good plan. Oh, so disappointing. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's they, they sail directly to Harold's court on a fast ship and spend the winter with him telling stories about how Bua killed their cousin and burned a temple to Thor. Huh. So they tell the truth. <laughs> yeah. It's unlike the other yeah. like warrior poet sagas where there's a lot yeah. of lies being spread yeah. about the person. This yeah. one's so, true. Somehow telling the truth never occurred to me as an option. I mean, I think honestly, I've read too many of those. to lie. <laughs> right. Bua's actual behavior in terms of the killing of Thorsten and the burning mm-hmm. of the, the temple is more than enough to enrage Harold. And now here's Bua just walking in, interrupting dinner, asking for Harold's friendship. Right. That's a perfect opportunity to get a little light torture and killing before bedtime, I'd think. <laughs> well, in some sagas, that'd be a real danger. But like our last saga, Ref the Slide, this is one of the sagas that treats Harold as a clever and wily king. Yeah, almost statesmanlike. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think clever and wily covers it. Harold's not a nice man in this incarnation. He's just not uncontrolled or stupid. Sure. Yeah. And Bua is in danger. But Harold, who understands the rules of kingship, tells the Arngrimsons that they can't kill Bua because he, Bua, has just submitted to Harold's authority and so is now under his protection. Ah, excellent. I do love these bits and pieces of the culture. So mm-hmm. handsha- handshakes and bonhomie all around, I assume? Oh, no, not, not remotely. I mean, Harold says that he'd have killed Bua on the spot for his sacrilege if he hadn't already submitted himself to the king. So hmm. good job, Bua. <laughs> Instead, he says... You will have to save your neck by going on an errand. You are to fetch the tafel board from my foster father, Dofri, and bring it back to me. And and then come the handshakes? Well, probably not, because it's pretty ah. clear that this quest that he sends him on mm-hmm. is meant to be an impossible task. I mean, in fact, Helgi and Vak are so convinced that this quest is a death sentence that they go home the next summer and tell everyone that Boo is probably already dead. <laughs> so we have to ask whether Bua knows what's going on. I mean, does he think this is a great way to impress the king? Or are the words mission and suicide floating around in his head right now? No, I mean, he knows he's not out of danger yet. In mm-hmm. fact, the undercurrent of threat is clear enough that Bua asks for Harold's promise of safe conduct and protection until he returns with the board. Yeah, that's probably a wise move. So uh, what happens now? We're off to see the Dofri? <sighs> well, well, there's just one more thing. Of course there is. Now, Bua doesn't know where Dolfri lives or who Dolfri is, <laughs> and Harold refuses to tell him. Of course. So, so Bua has to, and he doesn't have any, uh, you know, the legendary stories to, to refer right. to yet. So uh, Bua has to spend <laughs> an entire... should read more sagas. Yeah. Bua has to spend an entire summer in Norway asking around, hoping to find someone who knows where Dolfri's hall might be. Yeah, now it's probably not spoiling anything to say that he does eventually learn where to go. Yeah. I mean, it'd be a very different story if he couldn't find it, <laughs> right? Just, I'd love story. to read a story where that happens, where somebody mm-hmm. just spends the entire summer looking and then gives up. Yeah. Now, this is another influence from the romance traditions. Uh, the the quest of an, a knight errant seeking a mysterious realm, being tasked with retrieving a legendary object, facing the challenge of finding his destination, being tested once he gets there. Mm-hmm. I mean, this all has a long continental tradition. 
Sure, sure. And in this case, Bua learns that Dolfri's home is actually inside of the mountain called Dolfrefell. Oh, a legendary figure who lives inside a mountain. That's not ominous at all. Part 5. The King Under the Mountain. Okay, so uh, I think the Tolkien estate lawyers are going to want to have a word with you about this one. <laughs> but but this section is about a king under a mountain. The truth shall make us free, Andy. That is a tremendous comfort. Thank you. So why is there a king <laughs> under a mountain? Well, now that's a very good question. Um, at this point, this story is going to take a hard left turn into some really strange territory. Yeah. I mean, there's so much blending of genre in this in the saga. It's really yes. strange, and, but but kind of kind of fun, honestly. Yeah. Um, and, I mean, and to be clear, this isn't the only or the first story where most of these elements turn up. Mm-hmm. So, for example, the inside of mountains is generally a fairly supernatural place in the sagas. Oh, true. Yeah. I mean, and we haven't established exactly who or what Dolfri is yet, but supernatural seems like a fair way of introducing him, I think. I think we can just go ahead and say that he's non-human. He, uh, he himself a, says, you know, he, yeah. he lives in the land of non-humans. Right. He's a well, monster exactly like or that. a troll, but, you know, in a in the kind of vague Scandinavian sense of that word. Mm. And, and oddly enough, uh, there are a few texts and sagas that name Harold as Dolfri's foster son. Mm-hmm. Sometimes that's just a matter of reporting the legend that Harold spent time in Dolfri's mountain kingdom. But other times, it's a way of emphasizing that the way that Harold's rise creates a fracture with the past. Because he's called Dolfri's fosterling rather than Hoftenson? Yeah, I mean, Bruce Lincoln talks a bit about this tradition in his book Between History and Myth. Well, I mean, it's true. I mean, a surprising number of texts pick up on this motif. Mm-hmm. It's actually kind of odd that we've gone this far without running into it in the sagas. Yeah, with all the Harold stuff we've done. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, but it's it's not always about distancing Harold from his father and his family line, because doesn't it also it links Harold to those ultimate origins of the Yingling dynasty? Yes, which involve yeah. a giantess matriarch. Yes, and well, I mean, it'll be coming up in a few sagas that we'll be reading in in the next few months. So mm-hmm. it's yep. useful to keep in mind, I think, that Harold Fairhair was, by legend, the foster son of a mountain giant named Dolfri. Yep. And as we go forward, we should try to keep track of what sort of spin each saga puts on that story. All right, but but for now, let's see what kind of surprises Bua might have waiting for him in Dolfri's kingdom. All right, so Bua finds his way to Dolfrefield with the help of a local farmer named Ralph. Oddly enough, it turns out this isn't the first time Ralph's done this. <laughs> he says, <laughs> The king has sent many men on this errand, and none of them have returned. It's clear the king wants you dead. But in the unlikely event you survive, come back here and see me again, Boa. Well, that's not exactly a vote of confidence. It had definitely lacking the note of an enthusiastic send-off. Yeah. Wait, so so Ralph just hangs around near Dovjafell? giving directions to doomed men. Go up there. It's over there. Uh, and all these men have been sent there to die by the king of Norway? Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, no. He he is a farmer. He's got oh, a day great. job. I mean, this is just a sideline. A bit of a hobby. Yes. Telling people they're about to die from a terminal case of supernatural mountain king. No, 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 no. There's there's definitely a very slim chance Boo will survive. Oh, well, that's very reassuring. <laughs> so, Bua climbs to the peak of Dovrefjell, and and what? and nothing. There's nothing there. Oh, <laughs> or rather, there's no entrance. It's just a stone cliff and a sheer drop. Okay. Uh, by the way, I think the saga's lawyers should be talking to Tolkien at this point. Oh, really? Uh, yes. Well, 
<laughs> I mean, this is essentially the approach to the Lonely Mountain. Yes, it is. Uh, now, in irritation, Bua bangs on the cliff with his sword hilt and shouts, You, Dolphery, open up your hall and let in a weary traveler from afar. Your sense of honor demands it. He says this three times because he's clearly read folktales before and knows <laughs> that's what you do. You could probably keep a lot of questing warriors out of your house by just not opening the door until the code phrase is repeated four times. I mean, most people would just give up and go away after the third try, wouldn't they? <laughs> you should be designing these doors. <laughs> right? Now, <laughs> I've got a clever trick. Um, Here's what we're going to do. You'll never believe it. <laughs> they always only try three times. We're going to go for this four. Out. <laughs> Why not two? <laughs> no, no. If they're going for three, they're going to hit two right away. <laughs> oh... We gotta go for this. This is why you're the dorm expert. <laughs> That's right. Uh, all right. Now, in this case, the uh, the cliff opens with a thunderous crash after the yes. third time, of course, revealing a woman in the doorway. Ooh. Uh, yeah. Unfortunately, the doorway is actually a pretty good fit. This is Frith, uh, Doffer's daughter. She's going to be Bua's intercessor in the underworld kingdom he's now entering. Underworld? I think that's strong. Mm-hmm. Undermountain, maybe. Well, uh, the, now, the brief version of this section is that Freeth befriends Bua and introduces him to her father. And with her help, Bua is able to finagle an invitation to stay with Dolfri for the winter while avoiding the dangers of the kingdom. And in the spring, <laughs> she agrees to ask her father to give Bui the Toffel board that Harold sent him for. That's the very brief version. Let, let, yeah. Let's back it up for a second to that moment when Frith opens the door in the cliff face. Well, I thought the brief version covered it, but okay, if you want to. So Frith makes quite a first impression on Bua. Mm-hmm. The saga tells us she was large in every respect. Wait, hold on a second. It's got to be more of like a... Yeah, you're, you're reading it like Colfin. <laughs> yeah. She was large in every respect. She was beautiful to look at and finely dressed. Her hair was unbound and was copious and lovely. She had beautiful hands and strong arms with many golden rings on them, and she was quite magnificent to look at. And she had a quavassier in her hand. <laughs> she did. <clears throat> yes, that's right. What is your name and family? My name. Oh, she's she's like a really giant. My name is Frith. <laughs> but no, sexy giant, sexy giant. Oh, my name is Frith. <laughs> No. She says, My name is Frith, daughter of King Dolfri. But why are you a human knocking at our door? I want to meet your father and ask him whether I can spend Yuletide here. Hmm. You're not a bad-looking fellow. I think it would be good for you to come in with me. <laughs> well, that's slightly disturbing. Well, I mean, he is a good-looking guy, despite his stupid no, no. voice. <laughs> no, no, I mean the part about a, a human knocking at the door. Oh, yes, yeah. Uh, oh, that second part makes it pretty clear that Frith has designs on Bua. Oh, He's yeah. not really spoiling anything to say that these two are going to have a sexual relationship. It's kind of like the beginning of uh, a Rocky Horror Picture Show. <laughs> a little bit, if there were a giantess in the door. Well, you know, giantess, uh, you know, riffraff, same thing. Sure, Anyway. Why not? The author doesn't waste a lot of time setting all of this up. I mean, she's mm-hmm. clearly interested in him, and she's beautiful. Uh, ben Wagoner, who also did a translation of this uh, saga in, um, uh, I think it's Heroes and Giants. Look up for yeah. the, if you're looking for that one, Sagas of Heroes and Giants. It's got Kjolmasinga Saga and Floamina Saga and a bunch of other 
ones that we'll be covering. Mm-hmm. Very um, accessible, but he's, very affordable, by the way. Yes, mm-hmm. it is. Yeah. Um, so Ben Wagoner actually singles this out as an unusual case. Mm-hmm. It's more typical for a saga to treat non-human figures as being so different from humans as to be hideous or terrifying, but not here. Right. No, very much not the case here. Uh, Frith is a handsome woman. She's just mm-hmm. built to a larger scale than any woman Boo has ever seen. Yeah. And there's a joke here about tracts of land, but uh, you know we don't have time for no, that no. sort of thing, and we're far more mature. Right. No. Clearly. We're, we're serious scholars. That's right. And, and Frith isn't wasting words. She's fairly direct about what she expects from Bua. Snoo snoo? <laughs> no. Although, actually, yes, that too. <laughs> snoo snoo. Uh, she, she leads him through the mountain's caves to her private chamber, where she immediately tells him to take off his weapons and his rain-soaked clothes. Oh, naughty zoot. <laughs> Dear Longhouse Forum. I never thought this would happen to me. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, just his cloak and riding clothes, presumably. Right. But there's definitely the 10th century equivalent of smooth jazz playing in the background <laughs> at this point. Yeah, I mean, the author's subtle about it, but it isn't until the next day that Frith brings dry clothes for Bua to change into. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, that combination, by the way, uh, she's not human, whatever she is, and they pretty clearly intend to be sexually active together. Oh, yeah. This is a situation we haven't actually run across in the sagas before. There are actually a lot of monster figures in this saga. Abua's yep. foster mother is called a troll, remember? And this part of the saga seems to be suggesting that Harold Fairhair was fostered by a giant or a troll. Yeah. Uh, this isn't the end of the line. I mean, we're, no. we're going to see Bua wrestling with a troll later in the saga. Bua himself is going to be called a troll later on. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that wrestling match with the troll is kind of a controversial moment. Yeah, we'll save that for later. And the question for right now is, what exactly are the people under the mountain? Um, I don't know if that is the question. I mean, she's just taking away his pants. Uh, whatever <laughs> they right. are, they're non-human, but their alienness seems to be the point in and of itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, Armin Jakobsen's new book, The Troll Inside You, has a lot to say about the saga's preoccupation with the monstrous figure. What a great title. Isn't it? I hope uh, I see him in Iceland so I get to shake his hand and say, that's a great title. Well <laughs> and done. By the way, a, a perfect, if somewhat inverted title for what's about to happen in this story. <laughs> <laughs> Quite right. No, you spoiled it all. Um, no, I particularly like uh, Jakobsen's focus on the human part of the interaction. Mm-hmm. That troll figures represent a human experience of the monster's other, not the other's experience of the human. Yeah, that might be brilliant. Or it might be clever theorizing. I don't know which. <laughs> well, it's an important corrective, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, what Frith is, uh, giantess, troll, undead, whatever, isn't as important to the narrative as what her non-humanness means for Bua's experience. Yeah, it's a connection that carries a lot of weight in northern literature. I mean, Rebecca Merkelbeck links Kjellnessinga saga to a set of texts like Greta's saga, a Beowulf, and the Twin Bokuli that explore the fluid continuity between monstrosity and heroism. Yeah, I mean, I don't know how far I'd push this, but I do think this story presents a kind of a, a continuum of humanness. Mm-hmm. The experience of the human self isn't necessarily as clear-cut as human versus monster. It's more encompassing than that. Yeah. The human self may contain monstrosity and vice versa. Yeah, this is getting us into some fairly deep territory. And this is probably yet another subject that we'll eventually need to treat as a saga brief, though we'll never do it. Yeah. Add it to the list. Uh, so, <laughs> right. all right, back to the saga. Um, uh, so, in this case, the immediate implication of this move into the underworld seems to be Bua's shift into a submissive role. 
Fritz calling the shots from the moment the cliff face opens. That's true, isn't it? Uh, and she takes away his weapons and at least some of his clothes. Pretty much right away, Boo is at a disadvantage. Yeah. This is an underworld, or at least a magical world, a realm of magic. It isn't a world where Boo can win by force of arms. So he has to rely on his wits and trust in Frith to see him through. Mm. And he does trust her. He tells Frith the truth about why he's there. And she promises to help him. Yeah, which is a real contrast to his relationship with Olaf and, and mm-hmm. what we've seen in Iceland, right? The, yep. the powerless, passive woman. Now he's right. in a world where he's dominated by a woman. Right, well, and, and her mastery clearly either appeals to him at least as an ally and possibly yeah. as a partner as well. Hmm. It complicates the way that I look at the saga quite a bit, mm. actually. But uh, Damn, see, now I want to go back and like have a whole conversation about Carol Clover's idea of there's only one gender in the sagas. Uh, yeah. And it's like the successful male. And mm. if you're successful and you behave like a male, it doesn't matter what, you, what your sex is. So are you implying that uh, Frith is a masculine figure here? Well, that she's a, that she's a successful figure, right? Yeah. That that's as important as your sort of sex characteristics. Sure. Well, but uh, she's successful because of her aggressive masculine behavior, right? Although later on, we're going to see that she's also able to use her femininity oh, to achieve her ends as well. Right? I she's feel like she successful. uses her femininity from the beginning. Right. But, right? She's, but she's able to do so you know, aggressively and successfully. She's not uh, allowing herself to be dominated by others and allowing others to determine her fate. Sure. Right? And so I think for, for Clover, that's the mark of a successful person and a person whose gender is uh, central to the sagas rather mm-hmm. than sex characteristics making up gender. Your right. gender is determined by your ability to successfully act in the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, like I said, it complicates uh, how I how I read this this whole saga, or at least this section. But uh, yeah. So, getting back to the saga, it's worth noting that Frith also tells him that Harold has sent several other men before him, and that her father has killed every one of them. Hmm. Yeah, that's not encouraging. No, uh, <laughs> but it takes more than that to dampen Bua's spirits. Uh, or his ardor, for that matter. Uh, <laughs> right. He and Frith do indeed spend the night together. Yeah. Should we be concerned at all about the fact that Boa's got his his girlfriend or betrothed, or as you like to call her, his <laughs> wife, Olaf, waiting for him at home? Well, I mean, he doesn't seem too worried about it. No. Uh, but I think we'll be dealing with that later. I don't think he'd uh, be the first uh, seaman to uh, dock his ship in other ports, <laughs> if you will. No. No, no I we don't wouldn't. want that. I don't, I wouldn't. Uh um, how how should I phrase that? <laughs> well, that's you can you can phrase it that way if you want. I don't think I should. My <laughs> father was a sailor. Hello. Do you know the uh do you know the um uh the captain's wife's lament? Oh, I might. I don't know. How's it going? Oh god. Uh it's a song about a captain who brings his entire crew back to his house for night of drinking. Mhm. And in the morning, his wife starts yelling at him and yells, there's, there's, uh, there's semen in the bed, there's semen on the stairs, there's semen, there's semen in the fireplace and semen in my hair. <laughs> no, I'm not, uh, I'm not familiar with that one, John. <laughs> I'll just send you a link to it, it's been hilarious. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> so, so Frith and uh, Bua were off for a night of passion. Uh, what happens next? Uh, so, after a night in Frith's presumably very large bed, Bua is brought into the court of King Dofri. Mm-hmm. Uh, the room is full of oversized men and women. And uh, well, okay, John, can we just call them giants? 
You can call them what you like. I'm going to call them giants. They're they're mostly ignoring Bua, who approaches the largest man sitting in the high seat. Greetings, King Dolphrey, to you and to your happy court. Daughter, is this the bearded baby you told me about yesterday? Bearded baby. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, she told her father that a little bearded baby had come to visit. (laughs) She She tells Bua that. I know. So funny. I can't think of many things more calculated to emasculate a saga age Icelandic man. Yeah. Uh, But as we said, this part of the saga really is about Bua having to give up control to get what he wants. Mm -hmm. So Dolphrey is okay with Bua being there at this point. I I mean, the impression I get is that he's willing to let his daughter play with the human for a while. No, I, I mean, there's something to that. He says, you, Bua, shall drink with us in the hall by day. And we will talk together. And at night, you and my daughter shall entertain yourselves in her quarters, since you would find my men rather boisterous. <laughs> so, I mean, this is another insult to Boo's manhood, isn't it? I mean, I it's, it's got a certain similarity to the uh, story of Thor in the land of Utgard-Loki. Uh, I can see that, but you probably need to explain that, though. Okay, well, didn't everyone listen to our Thor episode? <laughs> but, all right. He, there's this myth in though. the beginning about Thor and Loki traveling to the land of giants where they meet a ruler named Utgard Loki. The giants challenge Thor to prove himself in a series of challenges, but in each, Thor comes up short, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And the worst embarrassment uh, comes when Thor challenges anyone present to wrestle with him. But he's only allowed to wrestle an old woman because it would be an insult to anyone else there to be asked to wrestle such a puny man as Thor. God, that story is so much fun. Yes. And obviously the whole thing's a trick. But that motif of being told that the giants are a little too rough for the questing figure shows up in a Mm -hmm. few places. And now Dolphrey's telling Bua to hide in his daughter's room at night to avoid the rowdy (laughs) men of his court. Maybe. I I like that idea, but there's another argument here. Dolphrey may be giving his blessing to Frith keeping Bua as a bedmate for the winter. Mm-hmm. Uh, Wagoner argues that uh, Frith and Dolphrey have several markers of Sami or Finnish culture hmm. uh, and notes that Icelanders believe that the Sami thought that sleeping with a woman of the house was a fairly standard feature of Finnish hospitality. Those crazy Finns. Well, <laughs> now, it's just a part of welcoming a guest into the home, right? I guess. Hmm. I'm insufficiently familiar with Sami hospitality customs of the Middle Ages. Uh, I can't judge what Wagoner is claiming here. Uh, If if we do have any experts listening, please let us know whether this seems like a likely scenario. Uh, Is Dofri acting according to Finnish custom? Is he just trying to indicate that Bua is welcome in his realm? Or is he suggesting that, you know, Dolphrey's not man enough to hang out with his boys, so he should hang out with his daughter? Right, Right. that it's more appropriate for him to spend time in the women's quarters. Yeah. So hmm. if that is his goal, then mission accomplished, I guess. But uh, Bua <laughs> does spend the winter, and it works out well for him. In mm-hmm. the spring, as he plans to ask Dolphrey for the game board he was sent to get, Frith announces to Bua that she's pregnant. Audible gasp. <laughs> Cue soap opera music. It's almost like a winter of long nights in bed with a wandering adventure might have consequences. Ah, but consequences for whom? Don't they have sheepskin around there somewhere? Uh, oh. Oh. <laughs> now, for now, uh, Bua essentially ignores Frith's announcement 
and insists on completing his task of asking for the Toffle board. Mm-hmm. Uh, Frith agrees to help him, although not without getting the last word. I will help, for I would certainly hate to see you killed, even if you deserved it. <laughs> oh, that's pretty rough. That's very nice. W- wasn't that one of uh, your wife's wedding vows? I seem to remember. How was there? Uh, no, I, I I think it was, unless you deserve it. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> which I have many times. <laughs> In any case, Bua takes his leave of Dofri, and Frith suggests that her father should give gifts to Bua so that everyone will say what a generous host he's been. That's nice. And those gifts, you'll be shocked to hear, Andy, include a certain toffle board that Harold Fairhair has long coveted. Mm. And then there's also a gold ring, which she says will be a keepsake for Bua, since he's going to have to give the game board to Harold. Yeah, this is set up really nicely. I mean, yeah. it's it's clear that Frith is just telling her father what to do, but he still presents the gifts as if they were his idea. Well, he's a doting father. Well, he's the father of a clever daughter. Well, I mean, that too. I mean, she clearly has him wrapped around her finger. Sure. A daughter. Uh, now, everyone's all smiles as Bua prepares to take his leave. And once again, the author sets up a potential conflict and then totally fails to follow through on it. <laughs> no. I mean, where is the fight with the giants? Where is the danger? Where's the sense of menace? Where's the horse? Where's the rider? Where are my keys? <laughs> yes, it, it pleases you to joke, but I'm kind of serious here. This author is maddening. Uh, but whether I like it or not, he may also be creating a deliberate effect. I think so. Uh, you start to get a definite feeling that this story is undermining a lot of saga patterns, saga genres in, in this narrative. Mm-hmm. The question, I think, is whether it is deliberately undercutting the literary norms of the genre, right? the way that Bandamana saga undermines the cultural norms of the sagas. Or, on the other hand, whether the author is just kind of limited in his narrative sophistication and tells stories in a piecemeal and sometimes inconclusive way. Hmm. Well, I mean, there's one thing about this part of the story that's going to be paid off later. Frith is pregnant, remember? Oh, sure. Uh, now, and she makes sure Boer remembers it, too. As I told you, I am pregnant with your child. Now, I'll tell you, if it's a girl, she shall stay here with me. But if it's a boy, I will send him to you when he's twelve. I expect you to receive him well, and if you don't, you'll suffer the consequences. John, I don't, I don't know. It's it's up to the listeners to decide. I don't know if my uh, sultry giantess voice worked, right. but that sounded like a grandmother. <laughs> How did he get her pregnant? Oh, I don't get I, it. I was, I was, I was, I was, I was trying for uh, Roger Rabbit's wife, but. <laughs> No way. Oh, well. There was no Jessica Rabbit in there at all. <laughs> Jessica, that's her name. Yeah. Uh, oh, well. And and Bua, once again, says nothing at all. He's become the Olaf of the situation, right? He's very quiet <laughs> and passive. He seems to have a selective hearing loss problem when it comes to uh, conversations about children he's fathered, doesn't he? <laughs> well, then he's going to be having more hearing problems later. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, spoiler. Uh, but for now, he's got a game board to deliver. <laughs> Worst game ever. <laughs> Part six. Harry's game. So, Bua has to make his way back to the king, but but first he's got to keep a promise. 
Right, yes. Bua promised Raud the farmer that in the mm-hmm. unlikely event of his survival, he'd stop in for a visit on his way home. <laughs> right. <laughs> and Raud was pleased to learn that Bua succeeded. But once he's heard the story, he adds, You mustn't expect that King Harold will let you off so easily. He will turn loose on you the greatest troll of all Norway. Well, it's a black creature which has killed many men. If he doesn't kill his victims, he usually breaks their bones. Mm. Yeah, that's going to need some discussion, that one. Yeah, uh, he's not finished, though. I'll give you a wrestling jacket, which you must wear when you fight him. And then I don't think you'll feel the grip of his paws too much. Mm. Now, does this guy have a side bet on Bua succeeding in all of this? He's way (laughs) too invested in this, uh, this guy from Iceland. Yeah, he's like the human giving tree of rural Norway. <laughs> he sure is. Everyone should have a friend like Raud. Now, obviously, this is a motif we've seen before and not just in the sagas. The the mm-hmm. semi-mystical helper who gives gifts to the questing figure. That's a pretty standard in epic stories. Yeah. Now, these helpers are – they even get their own category in uh, Campbell's Hero's Journey. Mm-hmm. Uh, Raul is a needed plot point, but he's not much more than that, honestly. Uh, conveniently, he's also standing in for Essia the Maybe yeah, Witch that's quite as right. Bua's protector and advisor. Yeah, how sure are we that Raul isn't Essia in disguise? Have we thought of that? <laughs> we never see them in the same room Pretty together. Sure. You notice that? Yeah, well, I mean, one of them lives in Iceland and the other lives in Norway, so Convenient. No. Uh, although Essia does have a cave of solitude, <laughs> and Rao does wear glasses and work for a major metropolitan newspaper, so hard, baby. <laughs> None of that is true, but I get <laughs> no. to do that. Uh, anyway, uh, well, we've been screwing around. Uh, Boo has made his way back to Harold's court. <clears throat> Once Harold gets over his surprise that Boo is still alive, he asks about the game board, and on the following day, Boo presents it to him. Now, Boo is a cagey customer sometimes, and this delay is because he knows Harold was trying to kill him with this mission, so he doesn't bring the game board with him when he enters the hall. If Harold loses his temper and kills Boo, well, the board's lost, so be careful, right. Harold. Yeah, it's odd that we never get a detailed description of this game board, by the way. I really want one. Hmm. Uh, it's clearly supposed to be a luxury item, but we're left to construct it in our imagination. Yeah. Well, I mean, most of the surviving Toffle boards are in pretty rough shape, but a couple of them yeah. in- indicate metalwork, wood carving, um, ornaments that might decorate the boards of the elite. So pretty cool right. stuff. It's probably neat. Or, I mean, you know, elite, but also people who are just good at carving stuff. Oh, yeah, definitely. Uh, one of the great things about Neftoffel is that it was a game equally accessible to the wealthy and the poor. It can be ornately made, but it can also be played with a handful of gravel and a board scratched onto a rock. Absolutely. And remember, in our last saga, Ref's enemy Gunnar uh, sends King Harald Hardrada a double-sided Neftoffel and chessboard inlaid with mm-hmm. walrus ivory from Greenland. So some of these boards, at least fancy. in the later medieval period, could be pretty fancy. Well, we're definitely going to have to do a Neftoffel episode soon. Mm-hmm. Um, so Bua does give the board to Harald the next day, and sure enough... As soon as he has it, Harold says Boo is not done proving himself. We shall have to see some of your strength. You must wrestle against our dark man. I thought that you would let me go in peace if I brought you that game board. <laughs> One wrestling bout is no great matter, Boo. <laughs> so they agree to this match, but... But this time, Bua stipulates that he will definitely be allowed to leave in peace if he wins the contest. Yeah. Good job, Bua. Uh, <laughs> Way to right. catch on. Uh, yeah, about time. 
both sides prepare themselves. Uh, Harold sends some runners out to gather a great audience for the bout, while Bua picks out his wardrobe. <laughs> and it's quite an outfit that he puts together. Um, there's uh, lace. <laughs> no. Uh, no, Bua's not taking... Lace, yes, that that's exactly what I was thinking, Chantilly. <laughs> Uh, no, Boo is not taking any chances. He wears the spell-woven shirt that Essia made for him and the wrestling jacket that Ralph gave him. Yeah, he's a belt and suspenders type of guy. So, I think it's time now. What What's the story yeah. with this dark man that Boo has to wrestle? Well, I mean, that's what Boo wants to know. <laughs> Definitely. Uh, when he arrives at the wrestling field, he sees four men struggling to hold back a large figure. Mm-hmm. This is the dark man, and we have to try to sort out what... Or who he is exactly. Uh, Harold calls him a Blaumadre, which uh, our translation renders as either black man or black creature. But Bua says, well, that doesn't look like a man to me. It looks more like a troll. So what's going on here? Yeah. Well, I mean, the obvious reading is that he's black skinned, either supernaturally so or, or else from the place of a dark skinned people like Africa. Now, this is something of a stock mm-hmm. figure in Icelandic medieval writing, the Blaumadr. Um, and yeah. there's a lot of scholarly arguments in favor of the African interpretation. Yeah, I know it is, but I, I want to try something else. Uh, first of all, the translation of Blaumadr is indeterminate. Mm-hmm. Right? Uh, Blau doesn't have a clear color correlation, right? It can mean black, blue, gray, brown, or just dark. Yeah. I mean, it's often understood as interchangeable or intermediate, but it's always dark. And there are some times when it's clearly associated with black or African skin. Okay, but to be clear, if that is the case, are you saying it's more to do with exoticism or with racial essentializing? Mm, Exoticism, I guess. Yeah, I think, yeah. Although maybe with a hint of xenophobia. Mm -hmm. I mean, the alienness to the Nordic people of black-skinned men, uh, that's intimidating. The differentness Mm -hmm. of it, um, the otherness of it, but not necessarily alarming from a racial point of view, I think. Right, but he's also called a troll, mm-hmm. which is a very different connotation. Yeah, it's a it's a much different story if this is a monster rather than a champion wrestler from a far off land. Yeah, definitely. And that doesn't mean that we lose the exotic angle entirely. Some of the more fanciful medieval European travelogues and and the bestiaries uh, would describe like one legged monsters, men mm. with the heads of dogs, people with faces in their torsos, and so on. And many of those monsters were supposedly located far away in the south and east. Yeah, in other words, Africa and Asia. Right, yeah. Yeah, so fair enough. But troll is also a category that has some overlap with people. In Scandinavian mythical tradition, trolls and giants and humans can all produce offspring together. Sure. The alien other doesn't mean inhuman. Mm -hmm. Monstrous figures sit in a strange middle space, human and not human at once. What they are really is the unpredictable and the unknown. Yeah. It might help if we think of humanness in these stories as a subjective continuum. The more known and familiar someone or something is to the observer, the more human it seems. The more unknown, the more monstrous. Yeah, and by that logic, a stranger is really less human than someone the character knows well. Yes, exactly. Not in a physiological sense, but in the sense of being less predictable, less comfortable. Right. The distance between us and others, that's the space where the monsters live. Sure. Yeah, and I mean, the only thing that, that really gives me pause, I, I think, is really the translation. Um, I, I'm used to the Blaumadr 
um, in his connotation as a kind of a more supernatural or other figure. Um, But the translation, the Cook's translation, really emphasizes the blackness of the character. And I think just the the use of that word brought all kinds of associations to my mind of thinking Mm -hmm. of this as a as simply as a a large African figure. Um, And that that changed the entire reading for me. And I thought that was a, a very interesting choice on the part of the translator. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that says more about yeah the way Cook uh, interprets this, right? That he sees it more as that exotic figure rather than a monstrous right. figure, right? And and uh, for a modern reader encountering this and reading it that way, and also looking into how the the term Blaumadr has been used in Iceland and Scandinavia, um, mm-hmm. it, it starts to you know it, it carries different weight, it carries different connotations. Absolutely, um, are they the Absolutely. connotations that the Icelanders uh, had for the the term? At the time that this text was written, I don't know. Um, and so we have to leave it again kind of with a, a no real definitive answer. Right. And I think there is, you know, there is a way this becomes a kind of uncomfortable thing for us as modern readers. Yeah. Uh, because the, you know, when we talk about the idea of a of monstrosity as being a function of distance, right, that something that is more unfamiliar to you is more monstrous. That suggests that the the uh, the exoticism of a foreign land creates a kind of uh, space for monstrosity, right? Yeah. And that's not something that we're generally comfortable with as modern readers, but it's something that um, seems to be a kind of overlap within these texts. Sure, and the and the texts are fairly inconsistent in their presentation of the blah mother. You know, uh, sometimes right. it's very definitely an African, and other times it's very definitely a kind of a supernatural monster. So absolutely hard. hard where to we say. get into troubles when we have a text like this where it's not clearly one or the other. Right. Right. Uh, all right. So uh, Bua has to wrestle this blah mother, whatever it is. Uh, and it's clear right away that Bua isn't strong enough to win. Mm-hmm. Uh, he manages to avoid being thrown to the ground, but he's on the defensive and he's backing away kind of all around the wrestling area. Yeah. Only his special wrestling clothes are keeping him from broken bones or death. But eventually, the Blaumother begins tiring and tries to end the match by forcing Bua back toward a flat stone in the middle of the field. Mm. The old body slam onto a rock move. Classic. Sure. Yeah, I think that's a... WWE specialty match. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think we can let the author explain this next part. When Bua reached the stone, the Blaumother pushed as hard as he could. But Bua did what was least expected and jumped backward over the stone. Bua tugged the Blaumother toward him hard, tumbling him so that his ribcage hit the sharpest point of the rock. Then Bua jumped down on him with all his strength. The man's ribcage broke apart and he was dead on the spot. First of all, I think we saw the same exact move in Finn Bogus Saga. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, but second of all, it really does sound like a WWE match. Uh, I, I guess. I mean, <laughs> dead on the spot seems a little extreme. Uh, but I guess that's it, right? Bua can go home now. Well, only if Harold keeps his word. He could surround him and kill him. Yeah, but he does. Uh, the story doesn't give us much to work with here. It's true. I mean, Harold's personality changes on a dime at this point. I mean, he goes from menacing and aloof to saying... You're a great man, Bua. You can go back to your land in peace. Well, that is straightforward. Well, if if not a little bit of a letdown, uh, you hope for at least a little speech, maybe a veiled threat, a riddle, perhaps? Well, uh, on the plus side, wrapping up the events in Norway means that uh, while Bua is booking a passage home... We can return to Iceland a little ahead of him and see what's been happening while he's gone. Mm. Well, Bua's been gone for almost three years. 
In, Three years, you say? Mm, in that time, a few things have happened. For one, Bua's abducted love, Olaf, was pregnant with Bua's child when he left. And now, yeah. she has a young daughter named Thurid. Oh, so Bua has one child with his Icelandic abduction victim and one with a giantess in Norway. Well, young Thurid Bua daughter is being fostered by Essia just as Bua was. Olaf, mm-hmm. in the meanwhile, has uh, had a bit of trouble. You remember old Colfin Colbiter from the last episode? Yeah. So, as we said at the beginning, this is one of the other two rivals for Olaf's hand. Uh, he was a bit of a clown, but turned out to be a capable fighter. Mm-hmm. He killed Orn the Norwegian and tried to kill Bua. Uh-huh. Now, Colfin was one of the reasons Bua had to leave Iceland for a while. Yeah, sure. Yeah, the, and the other reason being that he killed Thorstein Thorgrimson, the know. son of the local chieftain, which is why Helgi and Vak wanted him dead, because they were Thorstein's cousins. All right, all right. So... Oh, and he'd been outlawed for speaking out against the local religion. Well, that's, I mean... And he'd burned down a temple to Thor. All right, yes. Well, Bua hasn't made a lot of friends in his hometown, it's true. But the (laughs) point is that Colfin still hates Bua and wants Olaf. And remember, a while ago, we mentioned that Helgi and Vak returned to Iceland while Bua was in Dolfri's kingdom. And they Mm -hmm. told everyone that Bua was dead. Yeah. This is setting up a plot point we've seen before, isn't it? So many times. Uh... With Bua reported dead overseas, his rival has an opening to disrupt his plans with the woman of their mutual affection. Absolutely. Now, Colfin sails to Kolafjord, where he abducts Olaf, and the saga is very clear here, without mm-hmm. her permission and without her father's leave. This happens to Olaf a lot, doesn't it? Well, I mean, this one is different, isn't it? I mean, this is clearly an abduction, um, which happened before, but in this case, I think Olaf clearly doesn't want to go with him. Well, I mean, it's not like she was an enthusiastic participant in the first abduction. Well, Enthusiastic's right? a strong that's, word for Olaf. Right, well, that's why they call it an abduction. Now, as for her father, I seem to recall Bua telling Olaf that her father wouldn't be asked about him taking her away from Kalafjord. Mm. See, now I'm wishing I had looked at the Icelandic word used for when they say abduction. Mm. What, how's that translated and what are the legal connotations? But I didn't do it and now I feel like a failure. But... I think we are supposed to see, at the very least, a clear difference between the two events. Uh, Boo is taking away a woman who prefers him over his rivals, while Colfin is stealing a woman from her home. I don't think either one of these guys wins an award for giving a damn about Olaf's feelings one way or the other. But we can come back to that in the Judgment episode. I'll grant you that Colfin has clearly lost the moral high ground here. Oh, so so generous of you. Uh, so I try. more than a year passes after this abduction. But finally, a ship lands in Erebaki, which is a southern port in Iceland. And word quickly gets around that Buo was aboard. Uh-oh. Colfin hears about this quickly and gathers up 11 men to intercept him before he can get home, including his cousin, Grim Korpulfsson. Oh, yes. Yeah, this is the son of uh, Colfin's uncle, Corpolf, the Pokemon character. Uh, Grimm has been assigned the job of supporting Colfin by his father. It's, we have to say, it's not a job he's shown a lot of enthusiasm for, but it's all his. <laughs> uh-huh. So their band of 12 ride out, and they do manage to get ahead of Bua, who's traveling alone. Uh, Bua has just enough time to get to a large stone, which he sets his back against, forcing the attackers mm-hmm. to come at him from the front. 
Right, Abu is armed with a short spear, a sword, and a shield. Apparently, he's lost the sling at some point. Mm. Presumably, at least one of those is not currently in his hands. That's a lot of things. Well, he's juggling. He's juggling. Uh, No, he's throwing his spear, which punctures Grim Corporalson's shield and then tears through the muscle of his thigh. Oh, poor Grim. Grim's already out of the fight. I mean, that might prove a... To be a blessing for Grimm, because this is finally mm. the set piece battle that we've been waiting for, isn't it? It's about time. Bua is wearing his Essia made magical shirt, and his enemies can't land a clean blow on him. And meanwhile, mm. he's hacking them down one by one. Right. Now, it's not all sunshine and murder, though. <laughs> Bua's shirt only covers his torso, and one attacker manages to mm. wound his leg quite badly. Mm. But by then, Bua's killed six men and wounded most of the others. Only most? Well, Colfin's hanging back. He's waiting to sweep in and deliver the coup de grace once Bua's been worn down. But that doesn't stop him from shouting taunts at Bua during the fight. What a great troll you are, Bua. Defending <laughs> yourself so long against so many. Well, this may just be a game for you, but it's cowardly not to dare to attack me yourself. I'd like to say, by the time we part, that I was not holding back. You know what I just realized? Hmm? The voice you're doing for Colfin is basically like uh, Ernie on Quaaludes. <laughs> I don't know if Ernie's ever done Quaaludes. Well, if he did, he'd sound like Colfin. <laughs> okay. Well, at this point, Colfin rushes in, hacking away so quickly and brutally that he, he does smash Boo's shield to bits. Mm-hmm. Colfin now has the upper hand, and soon Boo is bleeding from several wounds to his arms and legs, so... Right. Colfin's you know, we've actually, I think what we've learned here is that Bua is not the overpowering warrior that the saga sort of sometimes makes him out to be. He's, he's fought occasionally off how many people over the course of the saga? Come on. I know, but he's occasionally overmatched in one-to-one combat. He tends to do well against large groups of anonymous figures. But once the um, named guy shows up, he's not as good? Right. Uh, but I mean, we should say, right... Colfin can't land a killing blow, but that's only because of that shirt that Essia made. Well, I mean, it's handy to have a witch on your side, isn't it? Yeah, not necessarily great sportsmanship, you have to admit. Nobody knows. Undeniably handy. Uh, Now, eventually, Colfin begins to weaken and tire out, and Bua is able to launch his counterattack. He breaks through Colfin's shield, dives away from the rock where he's been standing this entire time, and delivers a sideways stroke... That cuts Colfin in half at the waist. Ah, best bloodshed. Colfin falls in two pieces, Darth Maul style, and there's my Star Wars reference. There you go. And the fight is over. Ah, Colfin. I'll miss your social awkwardness. (laughs) (laughs) Ah, Colfin. I'll miss your social awkwardness and your charcoal chewing and, (laughs) well, actually that's about it. And I won't miss that either. Well, hang on, hang on. <laughs> let's not uh, let's not stop and do eulogies just yet. There's still five men left against Bua. Oh, but now all six of them are wounded, and Bua can barely stand. He calls out to Grim, who presumably is in charge now that Colfin is half the man he used to be. He, hey, he calls to Grim and offers peace if Grim will promise to be true to Bua. And Grim, noble-hearted man that he is, refuses, standing up for a glorious final battle against his cousin Slayer. No. No. No, he meekly agrees. <laughs> and then, following Boo's orders, <clears throat> takes responsibility for caring for Colfin's corpse. 
Yeah. <laughs> uh, I don't think we need to be too hard on Grimm here. I mean, there's never been the slightest indication that he wanted any part of his cousin's weird antics. Yeah. Uh, he actually seems pretty happy to take his leg wound and go home. Oh, definitely. <laughs> definitely. I mean, there's still such a thing as family pride, John, but uh, all right. <laughs> so Bua drags himself back to his horse and rides to Colfin's house where Olaf is outside. And their conversation is only given an indirect speech, but essentially it goes something like this. Andy, can you play Olaf? Oh, I'd love to. All right. <laughs> oh, Boo, you're back. But everyone said you were dead. Get your clothes and things and let's go. <laughs> oh, um, but I have so much to tell you. Just get your stuff. We have a daughter, Boo. Her name is... Clothes. Horse. Leave. Now. And see. <laughs> yeah, it's an awkward moment. Yeah. Bua's not really doing anything to make it less awkward, though. Nope. Uh, so Bua doesn't tell her anything about what's happening, but she well, does get on the no horse. there's no reported speech, John. Presumably the I chat. understand. Uh, but he just says to, you know, get her stuff and go. Yeah. They they ride to Colifjord to Olaf's father, Collie's form. Just for a visit, Right. Right. Polly uh, no. comes out to greet them and be reunited with his daughter and asks Bua to stay for a while. And Bua says he'll stay just long enough to wash and bind his wounds by Kali's hot spring. It does seem like it would have been smart to bind up those wounds before riding around the countryside on horseback. I'm no doctor. Well, but... I mean, he's got other things on his mind. Uh. Uh, so now he tells Kali what he's thinking. You know how it is between me and Olaf. I've paid Colfin back for his audacity. Now your daughter Olaf must stay with you until she gets an offer of marriage. Because I cannot love her now that Colfin has defiled her. And that's it. Mm. Cully and Olaf presumably try to reason with him, but we're told this had to be as Bua wished. So he rides home on his own and leaves Olaf to find someone else. Yeah, I, I really don't think there's any way to defend Bua here. Mm. I mean, he's supposed to care about this woman. But he dumps her at her father's farm, calls her your daughter, Olaf, mm. like he has no connection to her himself, and refuses to have anything more to do with her because she was, quote, defiled. Yeah, I don't think we're meant to admire Bua's actions. I mean, his motives seem to be pretty standard for a saga figure. He's proud, stubborn, uncompromising, and in this mm. instance, that's leading him to say and do some, I think, fairly heartless things. I mean, let's make a short and incomplete list of what's wrong with what he's doing here, shall we? If you want. He's just returned from Norway, where he spent a winter enthusiastically impregnating a giantess. <laughs> and now he's abandoning Olaf for involuntarily spending a year as a victim of an abduction by her obsessed stalker. Yeah. He also kills Colfin for abducting Olaf, which Bua himself did to Olaf a few years back. That's a bit different. I, I mean, I think we'll talk about this during the judgment, but it's pretty clear that Olaf approved of and participates in Bua's quote-unquote abduction. It's a legal thing. Uh, whereas mm -hmm. Colfin actually takes her against his will and I think probably okay. uses her against her will. Mm -hmm. And when he returns her to her father, he doesn't even speak to her. This woman who's been through this trauma. He addresses Kali only as if he's returning a bad stereo he bought on Craigslist. Can you return things you and get on Craigslist? I have no idea. I've never used Craigslist. I just think the analogy is not very good. But go ahead. Uh, 
It seemed like the obvious reference. Uh, <laughs> he expresses no interest in the fact that Olaf has borne his firstborn child. As we'll see later, the only remaining reference to poor third daughter comes when she gets married some years later. Mm. This is some of the worst behavior we've seen in a saga figure since Henthor. How dare you? You know <laughs> how I feel about Henthor. I know, and rightly so. No, uh, again, I'm not about to defend Bua in this particular instance, but I'm saying mm-hmm. that his reasons for what he's doing make sense from a saga perspective of a character of his type. Even if we, as modern readers, find them repugnant. That's fair. Still repugnant, though. Mm. Part 7. Three weddings and some funerals. Some people are getting married, and some are going to die. (laughs) Tragedy and comedy all rolled into one saga ending. Classic stuff. Uh Okay, now I'm sure people are still reeling from Bua's decision to leave Olaf, but... Things are about to get better for everyone involved. Everyone in a section called Three Weddings and Some Funerals? <laughs> uh, go on. So how do things get better? Well, I mean, let's start with a family reunion. On his way home from Kolafjord, Bua stops at Esjeberg to see his foster mother, Esja. And then yeah. it's on to and his, and his daughter, uh, which is not mentioned in the saga and which Bua doesn't really care about, but... His daughter is also there being raised by Essia in his absence. I'm sure he says hi. Uh-huh. <laughs> then it's on to Brotherholt to uh, reunite with his actual mother. Uh-huh. And uh, both Essia and his mother are in good health. Yeah, that's all lovely. Really touching. Mm. See, I'm, I'm sensing that you're going to hold a grudge against Bua for his treatment of Olaf now. As if you didn't hate him enough before. Oh, I mean, the abandonment of Olaf is icing on the cake. On a terrible terrible cake (laughs) and yes i do plan to yeah i also sense that we'll be hashing this out in the outlawry and thingman sections of the judgment episode you uh you think he'll make it to thingman do you well i mean (laughs) how does he not not only is boo (laughs) the protagonist of the saga but he's also a pretty remarkable character that Uh, achieves some things don't get me started on boo as a protagonist andy we don't have time all right all right all right save it for the judgments but Mm -hmm. i i think you're a fool if you want to outlaw boo well, I mean, given that uh, you gave up first pick in this saga in order to reconsider your pick in the last saga, like we know mm-hmm. who the fool is. But I would also say the fact that you're strongly considering Bua both as a protagonist and a good thingman proves that uh, I'm not the fool here. Hmm. Well, let's table this for now so we can finish the saga. Uh-huh. But I suspect that the listeners will be divided on this one, too. Yeah, I, I don't so. think they will be. <laughs> I mean, we'll see when we get to the judgments. Uh-huh. Uh, well, for now, why don't you uh, tell us how you, everything worked out so great for Bua? Okay, so do you remember back at the very beginning of the saga when Thorstein Thorgrimson was picking on poor Bua? Yeah, of course. Uh, Bua was targeted by Thorstein and his father Thorgrim for not attending the sacrifices to Thor. Mm-hmm. That led to Bua's outlawry and then the murder of Thorstein in the temple. Right. And the burning of the temple. For no particularly good reason. Uh, well, I mean, you're stretching things a bit, but yes, Bua did burn the temple down. Oh, what a great hero Bua is. <laughs> you're right. Why didn't I see it before? Yeah, that's enough from you. Uh, and uh, Thorgrim did kill Bua's father, Andrith, to retaliate, did he not? Yeah, it was his own blood brother. Mm. It was a tragic sequence of events, but put into motion by Bua. 
put into motion by Bua, I believe that Bua was targeted by Thorsten and Thorgrim and then outlawed for no good reason other than his Christianity. Hmm? Uh-huh. All right. Now, when we cover this in the first part of our Kjolnasinga saga summary, we mm-hmm. tease an epic revenge, but we're frustrated when the author seemingly abandoned the Bua-Thorgrim feud in yep. favor of the Olaf courtship episode. Right. An episode that ended in Olaf's abduction by Bua. Go on. Legally an abduction, sure, sure. But Legally? Uh, let's, get, <laughs> let's not get bogged down again. You wanted a resolution, and now we've got one on the horizon. Great. Uh, does Thordrum leverage his power in the district to hunt Bua down and finally give him his just desserts? Oh, I think you know that doesn't happen. That's what rankles you. Yeah, but wouldn't it be cool? <laughs> no, no, it wouldn't. He, he wouldn't make a good thingman if he was dead, mm. would he? Well... <laughs> <laughs> that would no, be a good I, thing we have to be outlaw him either. I actually like how all of this comes together. This chapter, even though it's short and we're going to make it very long, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, it's, it's really do. fascinating because it, it all comes together so beautifully. Mm-hmm. After Bua settles in at home again with his mother, we get caught up with the rest of the district. We're told that Bua's rival, Thorgrim the Gothi, has a young and outstanding daughter named Helga. Right. Uh, and if you don't see where this is headed, then you aren't paying attention. Mm-hmm. Uh, before we get there, uh, we also learn that Thorgrim's brother Arngrim has died, leaving his property to his sons, Helgi and Vak Arngrimson. Mm-hmm. Helgi takes over the property at Sarber, and Vak, who's the younger one, becomes a merchant. Now, meanwhile, the wise men in the district are concerned that the old conflict between Bua and Thorgrim the Gothi might mm-hmm. be rekindled once again, which is probably a fair assessment. That's, yeah, I would say so. <laughs> now, in order to avoid any future problems, they convince the two men to formalize peace through a settlement. So at the mm-hmm. spring assembly that year, Bua agrees to marry Helga Thorgrim's daughter and to pay a substantial fine for the slaying of Thorsten. Yeah, there's an interesting caveat to that, though. Uh, the fine that Bua has to pay will double as Helga's dowry. See, that's very convenient. I mean, mm-hmm. two birds with one stone, as it were. Yeah, the author provides a cool little detail here. Uh, he explains why this decision was made. He says the judges realized that Bua and Helga were going to have all of Thorgrim's money after his death. Mm-hmm. So with Thorgrim already an old man and on the downward slope, it would be too much like Bua paying himself for the slaying of Thorsten. Yeah, and it's a good deal for everyone involved, I think. Uh, and mm-hmm. and I think everyone will be happy to hear that provisions are also made in the settlement for poor Orloff. She's given to Helgi Arngrimson. <laughs> yeah, that's accurate phrasing there. She's given to Helgi. Yeah, quite right. And, you know, while you're right to be upset about the treatment of Orloff, it's worth remembering that this text reflects the values of the author and the culture of the time, mm-hmm. or, I think this is interesting, at least the author's imagining of what life was like before his own time. Of course it does. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't make it any less frustrating. But but Olaf is treated as an object here because at the time in which the saga is set, the patriarchal society she was born into still regarded marriage arrangements as the dominion of men. Mm. And this author, who has to be a Christian if he's writing in the mid-14th century, might have different views, though... Based on the way it's written, I kind of doubt it. Uh, he makes no effort to give Olaf a voice yep. or to address the slimmest possibility that her passivity or the treatment of her might be problematic. Uh, yeah. And I know we'll argue about her abduction by Bua in the judgments, but it's worth noting that she she does passively accept what's done to her and mm-hmm. gives herself over to whoever is legally in control at that moment. 
When she's under her father's roof, she's submissive to his authority. As soon as Bua abducts her, she immediately submits to his authority. Yeah. Again, I, I'm with you. It's frustrating to see that in action. Uh, but the Icelandic family sagas, which we're reading and generally speaking, mm-hmm. uh, they don't provide many examples of women being asked their opinions about marriage arrangements. It's just the way it Although works. Although we have seen it, right? I mean, Holgerth Longlegs, for example. Oh, we do uh, get that. Yeah, absolutely. So the question, at least for me, is whether this reflects a conscious effort at historical accuracy on the part of the authors, or is this merely the result of their participation Mm. in the traditions of a patriarchal culture? It is interesting. Do you lean one way or the other? For me, it depends on the saga, right? Mm -hmm. I'm not sure what to make of this one quite yet, but given how slow Iceland was to adopt church policy on consent, I'd guess that this author doesn't necessarily see a problem here. Olaf ends up in a good situation despite a rough mm-hmm. start. But, I mean, does the highlighting of that rough start and even the pointed silence of Olaf in extreme circumstances, doesn't that maybe suggest the author is at least asking us to consider her plight and by mm. extension the situation of women in this culture? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's certainly a possibility. But be- before we we talked about uh, Frith and Bua's relationship, I don't know mm-hmm. that I would have seen it that way. Um, but yeah. the more I look into it, the, the more I'm thinking that it's it's certainly possible. In terms of his handling of the the plight of woman through Olaf, I, I do think he could do a better job of it. I mean, mm-hmm. her passivity is presented as a given, and you really have to read between the lines in order to see a positive feminist agenda here. Mm. I mean, how, how do you, John, read the uh, the handling of Olaf by the author? Oh no, I, I'm playing devil's advocate here. Uh-huh. I think it's I think it's useful and important to look at these elements of the story, but I'm not arguing that the author is particularly interested in Olaf's story. Mm let alone that he's necessarily making a broader point about women in Icelandic history. Others, other authors, I think, do have that interest, but not this guy. Yeah, I mean, that's that's definitely my first impression of it. Um, I think if I sit down and think about it really hard, um, the idea that Olaf is treated so poorly and mm-hmm. the repetition of that poor treatment might be there to suggest something of the harshness of the treatment. So there, mm-hmm. there might be something to it. There might be a, a, a muted feminist agenda here, but... Uh, it's hard to grab onto. Right. All right. So hopefully that solves the problem of Olaf, I guess. I don't think we've solved anything, but (laughs) no. So uh, everyone is paired off nicely now. Thorgrim's feud with Bua ends with the betrothal of his daughter Helga to Bua and with Olaf being given to his nephew Helgi. Right. There was a great feast at Hof to celebrate the conclusion of the settlement and the two engagements. Later that summer, there's a double wedding, which presumably isn't at all awkward. Uh, as Bua and Olaf marry two different people, and hopefully nobody says the wrong name during the vows. It's all very romantic. Mm, and I'm sure Thurid's there just wondering what the hell's going on. <laughs> no, I'm sure it's lovely. Um, you've probably been wondering, in fact, what became of Bua and Olaf's daughter Thurid? She was given to Essie as a foster daughter, yeah? Yes, and not long after the betrothal, actually, Essie mm-hmm. passed away. Um, and she willed all of her property to both Bua and Thurit. I was thoughtful of her. Yes. I think Essie is a really interesting character, and she always seems to have the best interest of her foster children at heart. Uh, remember, she came to Iceland as a wealthy widow without any children of her own, and I think right. she relished the opportunity to raise Bua and loved him very deeply. Right, and loved his daughter. Right? I mean, yeah. treated, treated the daughter very well. Uh, and she's the one that pushed Bua to pursue Olaf. She set them up in their little love cave where Thurid was conceived. And so that affection for Thurid also makes a great deal of sense. Mm-hmm. 
You see, John, things are working out, just like I said. <laughs> Happiness. Well, all right, we've had two weddings and one funeral. <laughs> By my count, we've got uh, one more wedding and a few more funerals. So who else is going to die? And uh, where's little boy Buison, our post-semicolon figure? <laughs> patience, patience there, Johnny. We're almost there. So uh, Bua moves to Estuberg, where he reunites with his daughter. Well, again, that's implied, not stated. The <laughs> author and Bua both seem totally indifferent to Thurid's presence. Oh, no. That's quite true. So uh, Helga actually joins them after the wedding that summer. And as sure. time passes, Bua finds himself growing closer and closer to his noble father-in-law, the wise Thorgrim Gothi. Oh, sure. That makes Perfect sense. Yes. The man who killed his son and whose father he killed. Uh, yeah, as, as Thorgrim gets older, he hands over most of his legal cases and responsibilities as Gothi to Bua. Exactly. And before you know it, Bua and Helga are blessed with children. They've got two sons, Ingolf and Thorsten. Wait. Yeah. Thorsten? That's right. They, they name a child after the man whose brains Bua dashed out on the floor of a temple? <laughs> Yes. Yeah, that must be uh-huh. an awkward conversation at the dinner table. <laughs> Tell me again, father. Who did you name me after? <laughs> well, son, uh, you were named after your Uncle Thorsten. Y- you would have met him if I hadn't picked him up over my head and slammed him into the ground, spilling his brains out all over the floor. It was quite a sight. Oh. Uh, then I tossed his lifeless, floppy-headed body outside... And set fire to the whole temple. You know, your grandpa was so angry, he tried to kill me. But I was hiding in a cave and he couldn't find me. So, uh, you know what that rascal did? What, Papa? What did Grandpa Thorgrim do? Well, he ran over to your other grandpa's house. I have another grandpa? Well, not anymore, son. Uh, My father's name was Andrid. He settled this area and was even a blood brother with Grandpa Thorgrim. But grumpy old Grandpa Thorgrim, he got so mad about me killing Uncle Thorsten and burning down the temple that he ran right over to Grandpa Andred's house, had him dragged out in the yard, and killed him. (laughs) And that's why we named you Thorsten. Anywho, pass the salt, will you, son? (laughs) <laughs> but now that's our Emmy winner right there. God. But look at everyone uh, now. It John. just sounds so much worse when you put it into context. Yeah. <laughs> the saga author does a nice job of sowing the seeds of discord early in the saga with all that stuff. And then look mm-hmm. at how it's all resolved. Here they are sitting around the table sharing bread. Mm-hmm. All through careful plotting. Careful plotting. <laughs> yes. All he does is marry everyone off to one another. It's not exactly careful plotting. Nah, it worked I mean, for Shakespeare. Harry Potter ends with everybody marrying each other. Would you call that careful plotting? <laughs> hey, it worked for Shakespeare. Now, Boo oh, and that's a good point. That's a fair point. Yeah. <laughs> Boo and Helga also have a daughter called Halbera, but since none of these kids really come into the story, none of them are terribly important. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm glad we did that little routine about Thorsten. It's time well spent. <laughs> well, I quite enjoyed it. <laughs> Anyway, That's the important thing. Thorgrim the Gothi is pretty old by this point, and he soon gets sick and dies. And well, Bua then you know. becomes the Gothi of the region, and he's actually got a pretty impressive sphere of influence. Okay, so there's a funeral. Mm-hmm. Uh, do we have another wedding planned, or are we jumping right to another funeral after that? Oh, there's one more wedding. Remember Vok? Vok. Mm-hmm. 
Who could forget the brave merchant Vok, who I've just remembered? Uh, <laughs> son of Arngrim and nephew of Thorgrim Gothi. Definitely not you. Well, <laughs> Vok hangs up his merchant's shoes. What does a merchant <laughs> hang up when he retires? His ship? His scales, Andy. His scales. <laughs> there you go. And presumably the fat and greasy thumb which he uses to cheat with them. There you go. Vok hangs up his scales and settles at Sauerbear, where he had grown up. And Helgi and Olaf then moved to Hof, which they received from Bua. See, look how nicely everyone's getting along now. I, I mean, I guess it's an argument for how peace weaving through marriage actually works sometimes. Uh-huh. And that theme is emphasized once again when the handsome and brave young Vak marries Thurid, the daughter of Bua and Olaf. It really is like a Shakespeare play, isn't it? It is. Yeah. Uh, everyone is paired off and they live happily ever after. Well, for the most part, yes. We've now covered our three weddings, but we've got one more funeral to go. Part 8. Little Boy Buison. Little Boy Buison. We can't forget him. Of course not. As, as the saga tells us, After all this had happened, a ship came to Eyjafjord in the north. Some men from Trondheim were on board. And there was a striking young man named Jokor on the ship. Ah, stranger in a strange land. Young Jokul, come to explore and make a name for himself in a land of ice and fire. <laughs> Something like that, yeah. Why does he land in Eyjafjord? Isn't that way up north? Yeah, I mean, I assume that's where the ship he booked passage on was sailing, you know? Mm-hmm. And because he has some distance to travel in an unfamiliar land, Jokul hires some horses and a companion to help him on his way. Mm. And before too long, he arrives at Esuberg. I'm going to suggest an alternative interpretation. Uh-huh. Uh, we've once before in this saga seen a man misjudge his landing place, end up far north where he needed to be, and have to find his way south by improvised means. Are you suggesting that there is parallel construction in this saga? I'm I'm sugge- I'm trying to be generous to the author. Careful plotting, <laughs> one might and say. And suggest that there might be a moment of parallelism here. Hmm. Uh, Yokel now repeating his father's error. Uh, in ending up far north of where he wants to be. Well, I uh, wonder how that'll turn out for him. But there's only one reason I can think of uh, where that why that striking young man from parts unknown with a name like Jokul would be seeking out Bua at Esuberg. Well, quite right. As you've said, it's everyone's favorite child of a giantess, grandson of King Dolfrey under the mountain, Jokul Buason. Also known as Little Boy Buason. That's our boy. Although nothing in the text says that he's big. You know, he's striking, but not big. Well, I said little boy, Buizen. <laughs> yes, you uh, did. <laughs> I, was, I was thinking about son of the giantess. Uh, Frith had promised that when Bua left, she would keep the child for herself if it was a girl, but she'd send it to Bua at the age of 12 if it was a boy. Mm-hmm. The sudden arrival of a strapping young lad of 12 years at Bua's doorstep seems to suggest that it was a boy. Cigars for everyone. Congratulations, Bua. Well, <laughs> yeah, only uh, Yokel isn't very forthcoming about his parentage at first. Mm. He uh, he stays a night in Bua's home as a guest without revealing who he is. In the morning, he does approach Bua and says, I'm told that you are my father. My mother is Thrid, the daughter of King Dofri. I mean, he's pretty forthcoming now. Only <laughs> Bua isn't buying it. He says... The claim that you are my son is to be doubted, because I would have expected the child of myself and Frith to be a strong fellow, whereas 
You oh. look rather feeble to me. Oh, that's that's harsh. There's a fine how do you do. <laughs> yeah, well, Boo is not exactly jumping at the chance to claim his son, but mm-hmm. maybe there's something to his doubts. I mean, you would expect the offspring of those two, a giantess and Boo, to be a large and imposing figure. He's 12. <laughs> it's true. He's I mean, 12. <laughs> let's, let's give the kid time, for goodness sake. He's a man uh, now, John. Besides, maybe uh, Yokel resembles his father more than Frith. Hmm. Ah. Either way, Yokel doesn't give up so easily. He says, well, I don't have many years on my back yet, but as a token, my mother told me to tell you that she'd said you'd suffer the consequences if you didn't honor your kinship well. Does he go to Harvard, this <laughs> young man? I'm trying to do nasal without being, like, high-pitched because he's a part giant. I gotcha. So he's Bua's son, but he's also a giant. Gotcha. And uh, again, Bua isn't moved. I don't give a damn for your tales. They mean nothing. Well, your Bua is like a ornery old prospector. Well, he's older now, right? <laughs> <laughs> they mean nothing to me. <laughs> uh, they mean nothing to me. I want us to wrestle together because... (laughs) (laughs) I was waiting for the wrestle. (laughs) I want us to wrestle together because you're not our son if there's no strength in you. Okay, wait. (laughs) Seriously. Oh, my God. Now you have like a burrow and a a pan for gold. No, I... I, I'm ignoring your voice at this point. Uh, I think Yokel's response says it all. It's unheard of that I, a 12-year-old, should have to wrestle with you, a man who killed King Harold's Blahmother with your wrestling tricks. But have it your way. Yeah. And so they agree to a wrestling match. And the setting is absolutely stunning. Mm. It's kind of a cinematographer's wet dream, if you will. <laughs> I absolutely will not. I disavow all association with you, sir. Well, I mean, they travel east to a hot spring just below a mountain, and they begin preparations for a fight in a nearby field. Mm. Yeah, it, it says they dress themselves for the wrestling match. Uh, my immediate thought is whether or not that means that Boo is putting on his uh, wrestling jacket. Mm. But I also wonder what exactly dressing for a wrestling match looks like. I mean, are they putting on their singlets and ear guards for this? Rubbing each other down with oil, perhaps? No, no, Andy. Oh, well, I don't think it will be as enjoyable then. Yeah, I don't even want to know what you're talking about. The ladies' man, John. Once you see Will Ferrell in the ladies' man, you, you're going to always think about oiling up before a wrestling match. Well, then I'm very comfortable not having seen the ladies' man. Oh, I'm sorry, it's not Star Wars. Oh. <laughs> anyway, Boo oils himself up. <laughs> no, no, he doesn't. And then he says, I'm a master of Greco-Roman wrestling and I will crush you. And you will learn a new definition of pain. You're going to keep pushing this joke, aren't you? (laughs) It's late. I can't help it. Yeah, he really doesn't. Uh, I'm betting somebody says that in the ladies' man. Yes, Will Ferrell says that. Uh Um, And he's covered in oil. Of course he is. It's not funny if he's not covered in oil. Moving on. Bua and Yokel wrestle for a long time. And neither one seems to have the upper hand. Which is impressive given the age difference. Yeah. Uh, the boy of 12 is keeping pace with the father. And that should be enough to convince And the Bua. silver spoon, little boy, Bua, and the man in the moon. 
as I was saying, that should be enough to convince Bua that Yokel is his son. I mean, think about the serious conversations we've had so far in this episode. I know. And look how we've devolved. People don't realize how late it is when we record yeah, these things. Yeah, I guess so. Um, but Boo is very stubborn, and he's not mm-hmm. accepting that Yokel is his son just yet. Right. When Yokel senses his father growing tired, he offers him a way out, but Boo mm-hmm. insists again that they keep going until one of them falls. Well, this is not the best way, says the very wise Yokel. Yeah. But before you know it, Boo actually gets the advantage over a 12-year-old. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he's pressing hard now. <laughs> way and, to go. And Yokel is actually about to fall. Good for you. Yeah, when suddenly Bua's legs are swept out under him all at once by a strange force, mm. and Bua crashes to the earth. A strange force that's definitely not Yokel. And mm-hmm. Bua says, That was a pretty good fall, and your mother was probably not without her share in it. Well, I mean, to be fair, uh, Bua was saved by Essia on more than one occasion. True. It's only right that Boo's son have uh, some supernatural shenanigans, too. Mm. Well, the only problem here is that Boo's fall was a rather violent one. See, he crashed right into a large mm. stone and broke several ribs. Yeah, I'm going to say se- that's only a problem if you regard Boo as somebody who's worth saving. Uh, I guess so. <laughs> the wound seems to be significant enough to cause some internal bleeding, which prompts Boo to acknowledge his pending demise. Yeah, but not without one last taunt. Oh, Bua. Even as he's dying, Bua gets in one last jab at his son. As he's dying? It says he dies three days later. Well, I mean, mean, if you want to go there, Andy, everything we say is technically as we're dying. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Uh, For Bua, it was just, you know, more so. Okay. So he says, your errand here has not gone as it should have. For it should have made you a great man, but now my own tale has a short way to run. I mean, this is an odd thing to say. Uh, Boo is the one who insisted on this ludicrous fight to the death. Wasn't the whole point to prove that Yoko was strong enough to compete with his father? Mm-hmm. How did he not fulfill that obligation? Well, by almost losing and then winning only by virtue of his mother's help. I Which think- to me only proves that he's Boo's son. <laughs> <laughs> That's well, exactly how Boo has survived this long. I think the point, though, is that Yokel could have made a name for himself by an honest victory over Boo, whether he killed him or not, just to mm. get him to fall. But that didn't happen. So, in a way, Boo is kind of right. He's harsh, Jeez. but he's right. All right. Uh, this is a very odd way to end a saga. It is. And it gets even weirder. We're told that Yokel was so horrified by his deed, although, again, he didn't do it. Uh He's so horrified that he rode away immediately and booked passage on a ship away from Iceland. Yeah. He heads off to far and By the way, another thing that he's like his father in is that he likes to abandon corpses without actually announcing <laughs> what he's done and therefore not being guilty of murder. Uh, Yokel heads off to far and lands, and we're told that there are no further tales about him. Mm-hmm. Which is an interesting detail. Yeah. Uh, we mentioned this at the beginning, but we'll explain why that's interesting in another episode. Yeah. For now, let's pause over this wrestling match for a moment before we wrap the saga up. There's more to be said here. Okay. What do you want to say about it? Uh, would you like to emphasize yet again the cruelty of Bua? A grown man who murders a man, burns down a temple, abducts a woman, impregnates her, runs off, has an affair with a giantess, then abandons his betrothed at home after learning she's been abducted by another man... And then finally insists on wrestling his 12-year-old son to the death for no good reason. Something like that. 
Mm-hmm. No, I don't know if they were wrestling to the death, but it just happened that way. Well, they but, did actually. It- <laughs> no, that's not what I was thinking. But uh, we're all dying, Andy. It does. It does cast Boo in a rather negative light when you put it that yeah, you way. Think? I've. I've. You mean listing his lifetime accomplishments? <laughs> Uh, that's that's one angle, but uh, you know I was interested in how this episode parallels the more famous story of Cahulin and Konla. Well, this is going to be embarrassing, but I'm not much of an expert on Cahulin. I've read the stories, but I've only really studied excerpts. Finally, I know something that John doesn't. Oh, see, I knew you were gonna. I kind of, I feel, you know what? I feel the same way I did on the day I discovered I was stronger than my dad. This is great. <laughs> Well, now we must wrestle to the death. Oh, no. Uh, enjoy your morsel, little mouse. <laughs> well, I will. All right. So, I mean, the whole Bua and Frith affair and the big wrestling match with Yokel is, to me, it's a near exact analog to Cahulin's affair with Ava and his fight with their son Konla. I mean, there are some differences, of course, but it's remarkably similar. Like you said, it's, it's similar enough to suggest the saga author must have been influenced. I mean, by, you know... Either the Kulkulin and Kama story or some other analog, right? I yeah. mean, these kind of stories show up in Finnish and Russian literature as well. Oh, yeah. It's very similar stories in the Kalevala, for example. Yeah, father meets uh, his son, fights right, him. Right. Uh, so we did say at the start of our first episode on Kjellnesinga Saga that the story feels almost like this collage of narrative pieces from other stories. Mm-hmm. So this is another good example of that. Yeah. And again, I'm not a complete guy, so I don't have much to say about it other than they're similar. That's interesting enough for me, and I think uh, let's go ahead and finish the saga. Whoa, wait. After all that, you're just going to point at it and say, see? Different, but the same. (laughs) Yeah, it's like Sesame Street. Uh, Yeah, no, I'm going to leave it to you or the audience to make meaning of the parallels and differences because I'm tired. Wait, you can't do that. That's anticlimactic. I think we'll all survive, John, but (laughs) I'll just say this, okay, about Koholin and Konla. Uh-huh. That story is meant to be tragic and speak to the hero's commitment to the men of Ulster. Once their honor's been challenged, mm-hmm. Cahulin has no choice. What had been set up as a test of Conla's medal and his heroic potential for the men of Ulster then backfires when Conla encounters the men of Ulster before anyone else. And mm-hmm. What that means for how we read the end of Kjallnesinga saga is up to you to decide. <laughs> All right. So what do we have left to cover? I mean, not much, really. Bua died. Ah, our final funeral. There we go. That's right. Uh, it says that the church that Orlick, the uh, the Irishman that we talked about in the last episode, mm-hmm. uh, the church that Orlick had built at Essebjörg was still standing then, although nobody paid much attention to it. Which is a cool detail. He, The, the author finally remembers yeah. this Christian pagan tension from the very beginning, yep. something he forgot about. Uh, and for that reason, the whole conclusion interests me. Uh, but But carry on. Okay, so uh, uh, Bua, who was baptized Christian, or at least may have been baptized Christian, was buried under the church hall with his weapons. Uh, but the, the saga does conclude with a, with a bit of church history, which oh, is interesting. Yeah, fascinating. Well, it is. Uh, the saga tells us that the iron church bell that Orlick had brought with him from Ireland was still hanging in front of the church at Essebjörg when Bishop Arne Thorlexen was bishop at Skalholt which would have been in the 13th century, late 13th century. Mm-hmm. Uh, by that time, it says, the bell had been eaten through with rust. Now, s- still, it's it's a nice detail connecting the settlement age to the contemporary for the saga audience. Mm-hmm. It also does a good job, I think, of linking the ancient Irish Christian tradition to the evolving Christian tradition in Iceland. Right. 
and Esseburg becomes the centerpiece of that tradition in this saga. Despite all the weird stuff that happens there once Orlik dies and the Christian faith in Iceland kind of ebbs away with him. Yeah. yeah there's another cool detail about the lectionary Orlik brought with him to Iceland, too, in that section. Yeah. Uh, hang on a second. Uh, yeah, that was found in the church at Esseburg, although in bad condition. Mm-hmm. Arnie Thorlikson had it moved to Skalholt, uh, one of the two Episcopal sees in Iceland. So once in Skalholt, the lectionary was repaired. All the pages were fixed, and the book was rebound. Yeah. And the author notes that the book was written in Irish letters, which makes sense given where it came from, obviously. Mm-hmm. But I, I just like that idea, this this book um, that, that has survived this whole mm-hmm. long, long period, right? As a medievalist, that, that fascinates me. Um, <laughs> and now, even though everything is pretty much made up in this saga, from the characters mm-hmm. of Bua and Essia to the feuds and adventures that make the story memorable, these, these final details somehow lend a kind of credibility to the narrative that's surprising. Yeah, kind of. Uh, by connecting this story that he's just told to the places and objects with which uh, contemporary audiences would have been familiar, the author makes much of what came before, uh, I would say, more plausible, right? uh, regardless of how far-fetched and folkloric it felt while reading mm-hmm. it. I, I still don't buy any of it, but it's an effective stroke by the author. Yeah. I agree. And and that's really it. We're told that a great lineage descended from Bua Andresen, but mm-hmm. given no details about who those people <laughs> might be. Yeah, which is another mark of the saga's essentially fictional nature, yeah. I think. Uh, but yes, and that's it. That's the end of the saga. I mean, we've got a lot more to say about the action and characters of this saga, but we're going to save that for the Judgment episode. In the meantime, uh, we do have some unfinished business to attend to. Oh, yes. Uh, the Saga Thing Promotion Contest. Mm-hmm. Uh, we fell a little bit behind on that with the end of the semester and your move, didn't we? Yes, we did. You know, packing for the move put a real damper on all of our fun. <laughs> but but I'm happy to be here in Mississippi now, and I'm looking forward to jumping back into Saga Thing more regularly. Excellent. Now, the Saga Thing Promotion Contest was uh, kicked off by Evan Quinlan when he wrote the name of the podcast on a street sign. Ah, such humble beginnings. And from there, all kinds of cool stuff happened. Uh, we asked people to promote us in some creative way that I think the rules were involved spending no money and didn't involve getting arrested. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, what were some of our favorites, Andy? Well, I mean, I was particularly taken with a set of stunning pictures sent to us by Katrina from Breithelsvik in eastern Iceland. She mm. had written Saga Thing podcast in the beach there, and the scene was so incredible, and the contrasts were so great <laughs> between the dark beach and the uh, the snow capped horizon. Yep. that I assumed, and the lovely handwriting, by the oh, way. Oh yes, and I assumed immediately that it was photoshopped, but uh, <laughs> Katrina quickly reassured me with uh, more beautiful pictures of the beach and the snowy mountain horizon. Mm-hmm. Uh, we also had a listener, uh, Applecore thing, uh, seating a bookstore in Hong Kong with notes that read. Listen to Saga Thing, the world's number one podcast about medieval Iceland. <laughs> That's great. Uh, he put those notes in every book he could find about Vikings and Norse subjects. Well done, Applecore Thing. See, now we're huge in China. Is that true? Well, I, mean, I checked, and in the last three months, we've had seven downloads in China. Hey, great job, Applecore Thing. Way to boost our numbers. That's right. Uh, we had a lot of other great contributions to the contest. Uh, we had quite a few sand and snow writers, a dirty bumper saga thing hashtag writer, and uh, some more book note saga thing seed planters. Yeah, it's a dirty bumper. <laughs> and, uh, and also, uh, somebody uh, launched a bunch of saga thing boats in a pond at a park, right? 
Yeah, but that uh, one was my wife, and she, you know, she <laughs> loves the podcast and was bored down here in Mississippi without me. So, yeah, uh, I believe Harold Birdling tagged the tablets at Staples in Canada to help promote our podcast mm-hmm. as well. And Totalis Rankium, our podcasting buddies, got the great Emperor Zeno to help promote us. That was great. <laughs> that was kind of yeah. Uh, and we had many other great contributions that we just don't have time to name. Uh, but we really thank you so much, all of you, for uh, so much work that you did. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were uh, two of them, I think, that really stood out. Yeah. Yeah, we couldn't quite decide which one we liked best. So we're we're giving both of them a prize. Mm-hmm. Uh, one winner is Danielle Basur, who knitted a lovely red cowl with a Saga Thing logo in it. And we love yes. the cowl, the effort, the creativity, Danielle. And we hope you enjoy wearing your Saga Thing t-shirt with your cow. Uh, and I think the other uh, judge-selected winner was uh, Arian Adar Nichols, uh, who sculpted her very own Saga Thing earrings. Mm. Our logo on one earring and a Viking ship on the other. Yeah, my daughters loved those and, and immediately wanted a pair for themselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, my, my wife was jealous of them, but she doesn't have pierced ears, so she'd have to get hers specially made. <laughs> They're a hit. Uh, thank you, Ariane. Yes, and and that does leave us with one more T-shirt to give away, John. Right. Um, so we've yeah we had three prizes to give away. So we've, in the interest of of giving everyone a chance, we've thrown all the remaining contributors' names in a hat, and we'll pull that name out right now. Right. You've uh, you've got the secret hat, Andy. I do. It's a recently purchased Ole Miss hat. Ah, lovely. I see you've done away with all your Kent State gear and shifted allegiances quickly. Oh, faster than you can imagine. Excellent. And I assume you've lit the sacred fire and are wearing the silver arm ring? Of course. Am I some kind of savage? (laughs) So uh, who's our lucky winner? Well, let me see here. I need a drum roll here. Presumably you'll add that in post. I will not. I'll be too tired by this point. (laughs) In that case. (laughs) It's it's Rob from Totalis Rankium. Oh, hey. That's gonna, Excellent. That's going to seem like a setup. <laughs> kind of does, doesn't it? Yeah, well. Uh, well, congratulations to Danielle, Ariane, and Rob. Yeah. Uh, you can contact us at sagathingpodcast at gmail.com with your address, and we'll send each of you a lovely Saga Thing t-shirt. Ah, that's great. Thank you, everybody. Um, and that will bring us to the conclusion of this episode. If you have any questions or comments, please get in touch with us on Facebook, where we're Saga Thing Podcast, or on Twitter at Saga Thing Pod. Or you can reach us at the email address I just gave out, SagaThingPodcast at gmail.com. Or you can carve a message onto the back of a toffle board, hide it under a hill, and wait for a hero with a giant fetish to go get it and bring it to us. A giant fetish? Like a 10-foot high <laughs> fertility idol or something? Oh, I think you know what I meant. <laughs> And the the last thing I'd like to do on that note is recommend our listeners help support a new podcast in the Rex Factor family of podcasts, Pontifax. Uh, Mm. They've just started their tour of over 200 popes in the mode of Rex Factor and Totalis Rankium. It's a lot of fun and not overly religious. Not religious at all, in fact. (laughs) They said in their uh, episode on Peter that uh, Doubting Thomas was, quote, knuckle deep in Jesus. <laughs> which tickled my former Catholic funny bone. It but, did, and I'm sure all the uh, yeah. Catholic listeners loved it. <laughs> Absolutely. So again, uh, so uh, welcome to the family, Pontifax. Yeah, check out Pontifax and then catch up with Rex Factor and Totalis Rankium. 
all great podcasts. And that does it for us. We'll be back soon with the Judgment episode of Kjolnasinga Saga, where we'll decide once and for all whether Boo is a decent fellow and whether... <laughs> <laughs> I knew you'd like that. And whether the saga itself has any literary value. <laughs> Until then. Bye for now. I just want to say I I hate your voice for Bua, and I don't it, care. It, it really uh, exposes your hatred of the character. I think. Well, he's not a very nice man. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I have real <laughs> problems with him. <laughs> you don't say. <laughs>